So maybe a first question would be, give us a state of just your tribe. Madison has just been designated in December, Truax Field, as the home of F-35A. Doctor, can you start? Give us an overview. Wisconsin, I normally does exit interviews with legislators and state officials as they are still finishing their terms, but John Nygren is no longer a state representative. He represented the 89th District as a Republican from Marinette from 2007 until last Wednesday, December 2nd, when he resigned. So, wow, timely uh, it, exit interview, John. Congratulations. Uh, are, are congratulations in order? Well, I think it's, it's bittersweet. You know, it's, uh, there's a sweetness about a new opportunity that will be, you know, being announced soon. But ha having served for 14 years, uh, serving the people of the area that I've called home my entire life, uh, there's a sadness to no longer being that, that guy. But, uh, you know, new opportunities, uh, I think that's, that's something we should all look for uh, for, for, all, for everyone. I see that smile on your face, John. <laughs> um, well, okay, but let me ask, why did you run again? Because that's a great question. You resigned one month after you were reelected uh, for an eighth term. Right. It's a it's a great question, and probably my biggest disappointment about the whole process. Um, uh, an opportunity came up back in February, March, that I applied for. I've been looking for you know an opportunity to move on uh, from the legislature for you know a few years now, but the opportunity's got to be right. It's got to be something that's right for me. It's got to be right something that's right for my family. Mm -hmm. um, so this opportunity came up. Uh, I applied. Uh, they just the organization decided that they were going to put it off because of uh, you know COVID nineteen. Um, so I you know had a conversation with my wife. Uh, there was you know nothing else that was of interest to me at the time. So I ran for another eighth term, fully expecting to uh, serve in that. Uh, capacity, but lo and behold, uh, the opportunity presented itself in recent weeks. So, um, like I said, very difficult decision uh, to walk away, but it's the right thing for my family. And at some point in time, after 14 years and even before that, right. uh, serving my community for a long time, oftentimes family and career ambitions took, us, took a back seat. So it, it's time for us to be the priority. So you applied for something in February, but yes. they put the position on hold. Yes. You didn't have a conflict in the, this whole year, right? No, correct. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, let's talk about you championed how many bills on the opioid overdose, John? You know, I think it was like 36. Now, only 30 have actually become law because there was a number of them that, uh, unfortunately, after COVID hit, never uh, they passed the Assembly but never passed the, the Senate. So uh, I've already had some conversations with some colleagues who want to not only get those bills signed into law but uh, continue to work on the effort. And, um, you know, I, I am proud of a lot of things that I've accomplished over the years in, le in the legislature. Um, that is one. I guess I never would have thought it would be, uh, you know, uh, on my, uh, my in my bio at the at the end. Right. Yet uh, reality, um, it, it hit home for us as a family, hit home for my community, and uh, I'm not not going to shy away from the fact that I think what we did has uh, improved the. Uh, health outcomes for a lot of uh, people suffering with addiction in Wisconsin. There's people that are alive today because of the work the legislature did, and that's something to be proud of. What did you learn about opioid overdoses that you didn't know 14 years ago? So <laughs> I don't know about specifically about opioids, but I learned that addiction hits everywhere. Um, you know, Cassie's drug of choice initially was uh, OxyContin, but then later became heroin. I learned that, you know, a, a young 
beautiful, smart uh, young person can get addicted, and the depths to the, the to where they'll fall uh, are something you would never envision as a parent. And you, to think, you know, back then, I think if we would have talked about heroin 15, 20 years ago, we would have thought, okay, maybe Milwaukee, you know, maybe you know the bad parts of town, um, Milwaukee, Chicago, wherever. We wouldn't think Marinette. We wouldn't think uh, small towns throughout our state. And yet, that that's what we were facing. Well. Um I had made a decision to not ask you about Cassie, but you brought it up. Let me ask you, how often do you talk to your daughter now? Um, talked to her this morning on my way down here. Did you? Um, yeah, she calls regularly. We're, you know, we're raising her, her son. We've had him for three years now. He's four years old. Okay. Uh, Henry's doing great. He's a handful for a 50-something-year-old you know, <laughs> couple like my wife and I, but you know, we're doing our best to provide a stable home for him. And our biggest, you know, op, uh, our biggest concern with Henry is to break that cycle to make sure that he's given all the love and support that he possibly can so that you know when when those opportunities come to make a choice that he makes it one that's a little bit better than his mom did. When Cassie calls, does uh, Henry talk to his mom? Uh, he does, um, and he's even done some Zooms with her. Okay. Uh, for, I'll, I'll tell you, for the longest time, um, having meetings in county jail where you're behind glass was very difficult for her, and it was difficult for Henry, too. But now, um, now there's some Zoom opportunities, but still, um, so her time transferring to from county jail to the uh, 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 Techita was right around the same time as COVID hit, so they're all locked down. There's no face-to-face -face opportunities for Henry uh, since she's been incarcerated for almost three years now, over well, three years. Actually. Um, the number of uh, opioid overdoses, number of suicides is up. It's related to mm -hmm. the pandemic. Um, what next step in fighting uh, addiction? In other words, is there one of those six bills that didn't pass that if you could just pass, get one passed, it'd be which one? Well, I mean, first of all, the 911 Good Samaritan law that was actually re originally put into law and it would sunset, uh, that has to be permanently put into statute. Um, okay. that, that is no, uh, number one to me. As far as the pandemic, I will say that just our overall focus, I mean, I, I get it. We're learning as we go. We're, you know, we're learning the science. We're learning other things. Our priorities change from day to day on, on how to deal with us the best. But the uh, original focus where we basically shut down the healthcare system and only focused on, pande on the pandemic um, seemed appropriate at the time, but how many other different you know, significant health issues did we ignore uh, during those first few months? And I think that's where a lot of the folks who were struggling with addiction um, either relapsed or perhaps maybe had other uh, 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 issues such as mental health issues that they decided to go back to a drug that could you know, kind of make them feel a little bit better about the tr uh, difficult times we all find ourselves in. Well, um, the governor, when he holds his DHS briefings on COVID, he often says the legislature hasn't passed a bill in, I don't know, 230 or 250 days. Uh, what's your response as a former leader? Well, first of all, this is a partnership that, that should be taking place. The original, original uh, COVID response in April was something that was negotiated between the governor's office and the legislature. There, Tony Evers has not asked for any specific... Um, there's been no specific ask. Up until recently, I think he decided to put out some, some bills. But during that whole election cycle, that was uh, to me, that was all politics. There, there was no ask. There was no silver bullet where the legislature could come in and pass a bill and we were going to deal with COVID and, and you know, uh, stop the, the loss of life, unfortunately. So I, I wish that's one of the biggest disappointments is we'd get past this. I don't believe Tony Evers is a huge partisan. You know, he was the DPI superintendent, for goodness sake. You know, didn't come in with that, that huge baggage other than, I guess, the connections to the teachers' union, per se. 
there's a missed opportunity here, and I, I know people. Might, some people might point out, my partisan friends on the left might say, you know, the um, extraordinary session or lame duck session, you know, kind of scarred things from the beginning. Well, let's get past that. I mean, how long are we going to use that for as an excuse for us to be able to work together to get something done for the betterment of everybody? Well, pe- uh, people like Democratic leader Hintz still cannot get past that lame duck session. Was it a mistake to pass those lame duck bills, John? Um, well, in, in hindsight, for me, um, I would say that there were things in there that actually didn't um, didn't work out the way we initially had thought they might. For example, however, a vast majority of them, a vast majority of them, I think over two thirds were things that we had actually tried to get accomplished through the Walker administration, actually a number of them in the budget that he had actually vetoed. Um, So at least from my standpoint, I was willing to do it under Scott Walker. I'm going to be willing to do it under Tony Evers too. Um, Taking powers away, I understand how they can, you know, the... um, the Democrats can, can maybe be a little testy about that, but the reality in a lot of those cases, they were, weren't about taking powers away. They were about evening the playing field for the legislature and the administration. I'm always going to come down on the side of the, of the legislature being represented by, you know, or representing the entire state. The lame duck bills passed exactly two years ago, this month. Um, are relations between the legislative branch and the executive branch a whole lot worse over the last two years, th- than they were two years ago when the, when the governor took office? Or? I don't think they're a whole lot worse, but you would think that after two years they'd be a whole lot better. I mean, that's the disappointing thing. Um, I w- you know, the recording of Fitzgerald and Voss and that private meeting, I think that didn't help either. That just exacerbated things even longer. Um, were, but I, I think the fact, the old-fashioned politics of getting people in the room and let's work out our differences, and that, let's come up with something that we can we can agree on. The pam- pandemic doesn't simply doesn't allow for those opportunities like we that you and I are accustomed to having seen over the years. Yes, I, I, you know, and I think that's probably one of the things that just perpetuates the problem with the relationships between the legislature and the governor. Yeah, that was my next question. How has the pandemic changed? Running for office, holding office, and making public policy. You know, uh, from a running for office, I don't. I didn't really see a huge difference. We knocked on on doors uh, just like we typically did um, in the in the past. Right now, it might be the process might be a little bit different. You might be wearing a mask around your your neck, and you knock on the door and you take a step back and you have a conversation with people. Um, I, I think we we learned how to do it in a, in a safe manner. Um, governing, I, I think that's the big. Go up to any office in the in the legislature or the administration. They're oftentimes dark. Um, I, those I'm a I'm a repre- I'm a representative from Northeast Wisconsin, uh, and one of the ways that we do business up there is we build relationships, and that's how we get things done by by helping each other out. In a situation like this with a pandemic, I, those re- relationships are going nowhere because we just simply aren't in the same room having conversations and trying to find common ground. Yeah, and it looks like that's going to continue because I saw the Senate chamber today and they've got the plexiglass up and I presume that plexiglass will be in the assembly or you're going to meet virtually. The governor is going to give a state of the state virtually, so that's not going to change for a period of probably through the budget passage, correct? I, I would assume that that's accurate. I mean, that, and I do believe that that is, I wouldn't say that's the cause of it, but it's perpetuating the problem. Okay, let's talk about the next state budget. Um, the report yesterday by the Policy Forum said that um, spending commitments will outstrip revenues by pick a number, $1 billion, $2 billion. Is it really that bleak? <laughs> um, f- first of all, you tell me a time where, where 
asks from the administration and revenues have not they they never equal. It's always a, it's always a shortfall, right? And that's because the administration always asks for more money than than the legislature will give them. So that's you know I, that's that's fuzzy math to a certain extent. I always kind of get, have gotten historically annoyed by those stories because it's not real. Um, yet you know the pandemic, the um, revenues that have ha- we've been experiencing have actually surprisingly, I wouldn't say they've been fantastic, but I don't think anyone who's a budget watcher, anybody even at Fiscal Bureau, when we first began talking about this in in March, would think that we actually would end the fiscal year with actually a surplus, right? right. And even even fall, uh, heading into the second year, things are looking fairly good. Not, not growth per se, but things are looking fairly good. Um, so I, I think the budget outlook is not as bleak as it once was, but we're, we're definitely not, not going to be able to fund all the, the uh, whims that the administration had uh, has put forward. And just remember, Tony Evers asked for basically a flat budget and didn't get it. Well, in light of the Medicaid costs uh, related to COVID, let me ask you this. Is it time to really reexamine expanding Medicaid to take, I think that public policy forum report suggested that you could get an additional $581 million if you expanded Medicaid. Is it time to reconsider what has been your party's insistence, no expansion of, to use your party's term, welfare? Well, so I don't know if you remember my background. My background is health insurance, right? You ran a restaurant, then you were fine. You, you've, done, you've had a very interesting background. So health insurance to me is community-based, you know, giving uh, businesses and families choice um, so that there's competition in the market, right? And you remember, there, I mean, there's been arguments about this over the years from both both sides on, you know, self-funding, uh, you know, other other issues such as that that, that we've all had interesting uh, positions on. For me, it comes down to a competitive market. Putting more people on government care versus private health insurance is going to be something... Uh, I'm always going to be against. Am I, you know, that just, that's based on where John Nigren comes from in, in my background. I get the financial pressures that exist. Yet just remember, I mean, once that's built into the base, once that new income revenue is built into the base, yep. it's gone, right? Yep. It, yep. The, the Democrats have spent that money over and over and over again. But once it's in, it's gone. What have you learned about the difference between the Assembly and the Senate? I've always been fascinated by the 33 senators and the 99 reps and people have called the assembly that you served in the people's house. <laughs> Differences between the four-year senators and two-year reps? There, there's no doubt. The interesting thing, Steve, is for me <laughs> is how it's changed over the years. When I first came in, the assembly was perceived as, from at least from a Republican standpoint, where all the conservatives were, and the Senate was, you know, more moderate. Um, that it, I mean, not I wouldn't say that it's completely shifted, but public perception I think would would uh, lend you to believe that the the Senate is now, now the most uh, conservative body. I don't know if that's the reality, but um, the how difficult it is to navigate those two different bodies is something that you know will be the key on whether we pass a budget uh, on time, what it looks like, um, any significant legislation this this session. The, those are are going to be the uh, you know the big questions. Um, you know, the change in, in leadership, obviously, in the Senate is going yes. to be a, a big thing for us to watch. Let me just say, four years ago, six years ago, beginning as a, as a co-chair, um, I'm not sure that I truly respected the job that uh, Scott Fitzgerald did navigating the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, but after having watched it for eight years, um, uh, the man doesn't deserve to be a, a, a congressman. He deserves to go on to the highest office <laughs> in the land if he was able to navigate that group of, uh, of folks. 
At the Republican State Convention, Brian Schimming interviewed you and Senator Fitzgerald. Senator Fitzgerald said the gover governor is, is using his term, Fitzgerald's term, in over his head. You didn't agree, but you were critical of the governor. Has he gotten better at governing, or has COVID just upset everything? So I go back to what I said earlier. I don't, I don't know that Tony Evers, I mean, I don't see him as a, as a partisan. Um, his, part, his actions have been partisan, no doubt about it. Whether that's his choice or whether that's just kind of the direction things have gone because of, you know, because lame duck, because of COVID, because of all the different things. Tony Evers, remember, signed our budget. I mean, he didn't sign his budget. He signed our budget into law. So, I mean, I think that was a, sig a significant uh, realization that, that it, for, for him that, that maybe the legislature and he could work together. So I think that was a big, big uh, step forward. I, th I think the pandemic has unfortunately damaged it even, even further because we don't have those face-to-face -face relationships. I think the biggest issue uh, for the governor is he needs to find a way to meet, not through, not through Zoom, not through whatever, uh, with the legislature face to face, you know, you and I are, are socially distanced right now doing this interview. Yes, we are. I think that'll go a long way toward improving those relationships and uh, at the same time helping him govern the state. It, we're all better off if we can all uh, work together, regardless of the, uh, whether we have an R or a D behind our name. You will not be joint finance chair, but what do you anticipate is the toughest issue in the next state budget? Well, I think we'll see a lot of regurgitation of things from the last budget, um, meaning we'll see Medicaid expansion Certainly. You know, kind of be on, on the front uh, front burner for the, for the governor. Right. Um, I, I think education funding is, is going to be an issue again. I, I think there's there's senators. I remember hearing this last time around. There were senators that believe that you know no new not another dime for for education. You know what? Um, my wife's a public school teacher, and my kids have all gone to public schools. I believe in public schools, uh, yet I do believe that they need that we need to do a better job. We need to, uh, we're, we're failing kids in a lot of different ways. I, I worry about the pandemic, uh, the impact on our kids not being in school. Um, I, I'm afraid there's going to be a long-standing uh, uh, mark left on the, this, this generation of kids, and that, that concerns me. Um, so I, th I think education funding is going to be a, an issue again. I think the, uh, the pressure with the Medicaid money will be, of course, brought to bear on it again. Right. Uh, I'm not so sure there's going to be any many new issues in the budget. I think transportation, my hope is transportation, you know, uh, we at least took, can take a somewhat of a two-year hiatus off of that, the pressure on, uh, on revenues. Right. But, the, you know, that's me as the outgoing chairman of that committee. But if you could wave a wand, how would you pay long term for highways and bridges in this state? Fix it. Well, wave, wave your wand. My, my, my wand was a, a user system, um, user fee system, whether it be a, a toll system or something, you know, vehicle miles travel. I mean, I, I get the big brother concern about that, uh, but I, I believe in the future that's, that's going to be the way we're going to pay for our, our, our highways so that the people that are using the system are actually the ones paying for it. Let's talk about COVID. Um, you're from northeast Wisconsin. Is there really a split in terms of what the governor said, uh, safer at home, mask, 25% occupancy between the Milwaukee and the Dane County? The Supreme Court heard an argument today on an order shutting down schools in Dane County. Is there really a rural-urban gap on the issue of the pandemic? I believe there is. Um, not so much on the masks. Um, I think that, I think the, I mean, the effectiveness of the mask, whether the mask really works, um, I think you'll have people that are argue about that. But I think if you go out in the public, in the public, you go into grocery store or wherever, everybody's wearing a mask. So that, that's not an argument. 
I, I've often said, you know, a Republican from Marinette is different than a Republican from uh, the Milwaukee suburbs, for mm-hmm. example. Way different. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we're, you know, we're we're social conservatives more than anything. Um, you know, fiscally conservative to a certain extent, but. Uh, the biggest issue is, is people just—they just want to be able to live, live their life without a not a huge government, uh, you know, hanging over their heads. I think that's one of the biggest issues. I'll tell you, the day after the Supreme Court struck down the safer at home order, um, a buddy and I—I um, I, I said, "Hey, let's uh, let's have breakfast tomorrow morning." We went to a local uh, uh, restaurant, not knowing what to expect. The place was packed. Um, I, I think there is a big divide between more uh, Dane County, especially Dane and Milwaukee County, and getting into the rest of the state. It's not even so much north and south. It's Dane, Milwaukee, and the rest of the state. But how do the people in the 89th district that you represented for 14 years feel about the major urban problems in the city of Milwaukee, the shootings, the achievement gaps? Uh, are, Are they really as concerned or as unconcerned as some Democratic, some Dems from Milwaukee say they, they believe they are? Well, I mean, I think that it's not understanding where each of us come from is the problem, right? Um, you know, come come live in northern Wisconsin for a week and, and maybe send our, our uh, one of our folks to live in the urban city for a week and maybe get a little different perspective. I'll tell you one of the things that were opened my eyes about that is uh, we actually did a, a, a tour with MPS a few years back, and I had a conversation with the superintendent at the time, some of the things that she was describing to me. You know, poverty is poverty. Really, there's, I mean, other than maybe the racial makeup, um, if kids are, are coming from a poor family in Marinette County versus a poor family in Milwaukee mm-hmm. County, mm-hmm. the outcomes are very, very similar. We may not have the, the, as big a, a disparity in crime issues, but the outcomes for the kids are, are very similar, and some of the challenges are the same. So I, I think that's one of the biggest things we need to get our, he- our, our heads around is the fact that we don't understand each other as well as we possibly should because our differences are not that great. Two years later, was the Foxconn deal a bad deal for the state of Wisconsin? You know, I'm still optimistic. Um, remember, it was pay as you go, right? I mean, if the jobs aren't there, the the, uh, the tax credits don't come. Now, I, I know there were some infrastructure investments in, in the area, some more county and, 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 and community than, than anything else. But the infrastructure investment from the state, things such as the interstate, that was going to happen anyway. So from my perspective, um, you know, I, that vote, I think, was something that uh, I, I'm still optimistic that w- uh, will materialize for something positive for that area. Hey, I, I'm not a um, I'm not going to be a hypocrite on this. I've actually lobbied for uh, state investments in infrastructure in Marinette for Marinette Marine, uh, and we we've seen huge growth there. And we, another round of contracts, pov- uh, possibly for another 20 years of building ships for the Navy. Um, so. It, it does, in today's world, it does take some type of capital infusion from the state at times to be able to, to, be able to continue to grow jobs. And so I'm not, I'm not uh, going to give up on that Foxconn opportunity. I, th- I think it still could materialize. We're only weeks away from the 10-year anniversary of Act 10. you have any second thoughts 10 years later about, um, number one, Act 10 or how it was put through? I mean, you and I live through a historical part of that capital. When you look out and you see 100,000 people, you're witnessing history. Yep. Any second thoughts or regrets about Act 10? You know, I think uh, Governor Walker has said, you know, his only regret was maybe, you know, how it was sold to the public. Um, my wife is a public school teacher. So, I mean, I, you know, there was one night I think I got a call from her in tears and um, she was getting calls at home and, you know, nobody would talk to her at school. It, and it cost her money. Yeah. Uh, for, well, it for, cost for, me for, money as a legislator, too. Sure. As for pension right. and health care. Yep. Right. But... Here's 
here's what oftentimes, I have no regrets about voting for that. Zero. I think it was the right thing for the state. Here's what Maggie and I talked about that weekend when I went home. And so you remember, I mean, a lot of states were faced with, the, we were all faced with the same issues, right? With, with, with not enough uh, revenues for the state to be able to balance its budget. So states were making different decisions than Governor Walker chose uh, uh, to put us on, on that path towards. Um, a lot of states were laying people off. A lot of states were cutting um, em- employees, doing furloughs, whatever the case may be. There were a lot of cuts going on. While we were cutting, doing across-the-board cuts, there were no massive layoffs going on in Wisconsin. So Maggie and I, when we had that conversation, at the end of the day, I, I think it cost us about $800 a month, which from a teacher salary and a legislator salary, that's significant. Yeah. yeah. Um, but we came, down to the con- came up to the conclusion that both of us still had jobs at the end of the day. Okay. And a lot of people throughout the country were not so lucky. So that's how I come at it, and that's why I think it was the right call. Um, you have witnessed, as a leading Republican in Wisconsin, uh, President Trump taking over your party nationally. Um, has that been good for the Republican Party, John? So I, interestingly enough, so I did not vote for President Trump in the primary. Um, I, I think my quote uh, at the time was, we, we have to be able to do better than two East Coast liberals, meaning Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. So, I mean, Wisconsin was kind of, we were, we were going to try and, if you remember back then, we were going to try and stop the Trump nomination. So that was where I came from. Where I am now, I know there's people that don't like his tweets. I'm one of them. I know there's people that don't like the way he presents himself. Uh, I'm one of them. Yet, if you look at the outcomes for us as a party, for us as a nation, I'm pretty happy with them. And I think what I hear from a lot of people, and I've kind of grown along the same path uh, with these conversations, is you, you know, we had Mitt Romney, John McCain, both two very professional, honorable, nice gentlemen. The media and the Democrats just beat the crap out of them unmercifully. I mean, over and over and over again. So I think a lot of people out there that, that Donald T- Trump has reached are the people that are saying, hey, why can't you guys fight as hard? I see. And because of that, I, th- I think that's where a lot of Republicans are coming from. Okay. We want somebody that's going to get blood, his knuckles bloodied for us. And I, I, so because of that, I am disappointed in the outcome of the election. I believe Donald Trump uh, lost Wisconsin. I believe he lost the nation. Yet there are some unanswered questions that need to be, we need to talk about our, our elections. You know, why is it that a you know, ballot harvesting in Madison, Wisconsin is okay, but ballot you're, harvesting... You're talking about uh, at the parks. Right. Okay. But ballot harvesting in California, where Democrats sued Republicans for doing something very similar, is not. You know, um, clerks, and 99% of them do a great job, but clerks that aren't following the letter of the law is something we should talk about. So that Let's hope in the future our, our elections aren't as contentious and, you know, at the day after the election, we actually have a winner. But Election Commission member Dean Knudsen, who you served with, said Great our guy. machines worked. Yep. And uh, so the, if you extend that, there are not enough problems with our election to overturn it. So you believe Trump uh, was defeated by Democrat Joe Biden in Wisconsin? I do. You do. Okay. Um, one thing you're going to miss about the ledge? Just the relationships, um, okay. the friendships I built, um, and also you know, being in the room when big decisions are made that affect the outcome of our state is something I've had. A, you know, I've as you said earlier, I've been around through some hi- historic times, and it's going to be something I'm going to miss. One thing you're not going to miss. Uh, well, 
uh, you know, people that traditionally have been my friends getting angry with me over a vote here or there, um, you know, pointing a finger at me in the parking lot of, of uh, the grocery store or whatever, I won't miss that. Um, advice to the next representative from the 89th. Just remember where it came from. Okay. Um, a month from now, I'm going to I'm going to make a uh, prediction that you're registered as, as a lobbyist. You're re not ready to, to announce what you're doing, but am I right? Well, we all lobby the legislature in a lot of different capacities, <laughs> either as a private citizen or somebody working representing an industry. Uh, let's just say I'll be I'll be working towards something I believed in a long time. Uh, in it's, it's for a long part of my life, uh, major part of my life, and I feel good about the opportunity that hopefully is coming my way. Well, congratulations Thank on you. 14 years in the legislature. Good luck on uh, when you open the next career door. Thank you for the exit, exit, exit interview. John Nygren, who represented the 89th District, a Republican from Marinette from 2007 until last Wednesday, December 2nd. John, thank you very thank much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. This program is a production of Wisconsin Eye, an independent, nonpartisan, nonprofit media network with a mission to inform, educate, and engage the citizens of Wisconsin. Wisconsin Eye is the nation's first and only independently funded state civics broadcast network, providing gavel-to-gavel -gavel access to government proceedings and events at the state capitol. 